0: For part two of our second interview, Dr. John Petroza chats with Dr. Jacques Denet. Sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy what we think are valuable lessons about our history, sparking innovation, and newer surgical applications of reproductive surgery. Now, one of the things that's evolved during our time is robotic surgery. Uh, You know, I don't, I do some robotics. I'm not a big robotic person. I still do most of my surgery with straight stick laparoscopy. And I remember when robotics was coming out, I heard a a, a surgeon, a a very well-known GYN surgeon, explain why he did not do robotic surgery. And and it still sticks to me to this day. Someone had asked him, don't you think there's a benefit to having the three-dimensional view with robotic surgery? And he said, you know what? I've been doing so much regular laparoscopy that in my brain, somehow I process things in three dimensions. And I said, that is absolutely right. Right? And I suspect you probably feel the same way. You are completely
1: right. In fact, our brain has changed the analysis of the image because when you look at the, on the screen, it's a 2D and transforming 3D in your brain. I fully agree with you. It's something strange, but it happens. And it makes the things easy. And really, we don't think about it. But when you have in front of you a young assistant, when he starts to do the first laparoscopy, he has always difficulty huh, to, to go with the forceps to the round ligament of the fallopian tube. He hesitates. And it seems to us so easy because the brain has modified yeah. the perception on the image and the screen. And in a few uh, weeks, for the young assistant, it will be the same. And it's very, really important, Is uh, our brain has adopted the 2D and changing 3D. That's we correct.
0: agree with you. That's it's phenomenal. In all the years that you've been practicing, Jack, who is the best laparoscopic surgeon that you've seen? The best? Who's the best laparoscopic surgeon that you have ever seen? In the world. In the world.
1: There are are many, I guess there are many people like uh, Jean-Bernard Dubuisson. Jean-Bernard Dubuisson who was one of the first to do uh, laparoscopic myomectomy. Uh, The family Nets actually uh, start uh, in U.S. uh, to do... uh, a lot of surgery and they were very uh, active and uh, surely there are many other people, many, many other people uh, that I met, are rich. Uh, and then finally the young generation, Arnaud Vaties, Arnaud Vaties, uh, and uh, uh, making surgery in all uh, countries of the world. And in fact, this uh, young generation Learn from us and improve their skill by doing more and more difficult surgery. Also, uh, in Italy, I was impressed by uh, people, the gynecologists from Roma, from the Catholic University of Roma, and uh, they made uh, uh, really very nice surgery for lumbopelvic dissection in case of uh, cancer, pelvic cancer, and. Uh, they are very good. In fact, I cannot remember all of them, but a majority of the people I invited my department during the symposium organized very, uh, every year, like Du Wisson, Harry Rich, Michel Canis, uh, Maurice Bruy, who came from a pioneer, all the people, all the people, were at a certain time the top level of their generation. Imagine Hubermanes, Hubermanes, you don't know the name of Hubermanes, huh? No? You know? No. Ah Hubermanes yeah. was a gynecologist in France, and you have to know that the France is the I'm from Belgium, I'm not from France. In France, there are two types of license: obstetrician gynecologist, and you have the right to do surgery. Okay? And there are gynecologists, what they call medical gynecologist. And Hubert Maness was working with uh, Maurice Brua in Clermont-Ferrand, and he was the first with the laparoscopy he said to Maurice Brua, looking at the tubal pregnancy, ectopic pregnancy. If we open the tube, if we aspirate, and we irrigate by laparoscopy, maybe it will work. And that was the first uh, ectopic pregnancy operated by endoscopy, by a gynecologist who was not a surgeon with uh, Maurice Breuer. And uh, fantastic, because now everybody is doing exactly the same. But imagine at that time, at that time, when uh, Maurice Bruer and Hubert Maness came to the ISRM meeting in the United States, and when they recommend to, do, they, to perform endoscopy for tubal pregnancy and just to remove the trophoblast by laparoscopy, and rinsing the tube at that time, nobody accepted. Nobody accepted that. <laughs> you know? There were some difficulties, and finally, somebody like Hubermanes, also a pioneer, and it should re- be represented like at the top, endoscopy, because he had it's
0: the vision, he had the
1: brain to to show uh, how to do it, uh, yeah. to make the thing possible, I guess.
0: That's phenomenal. He had the vision. He had the vision, he had and had he vision, see this. Yeah. He, had
1: he had the vision. He had the vision.
0: You know, one of the things you know, I teach a lot of residents. I teach a lot of fellows, and you know, it used to be that we, tr- when we trained people, the philosophy was always see one, do one, then teach. And now we have simulation. Now our residents and fellows can go and practice in the office with laparoscopic training boxes. What do you think is the best way to train our residents and trainees?
1: Do you want my, really my opinion? I do. I want your honest, true opinion. Honestly, I consider that the best way to learn the endoscopic surgery is to be in front of the teacher and to make 50% of the surgery start step by step but I don't think that the simulators of the uh, other equipment to make uh, endoscopy represent the ideal tool. The ideal tool, in my opinion, is to be in the operating theatre to have with the forceps the control of the ligament of the vessels you are in contact. And in my department, when I was—I'm now emeritus—but when I was head of department. That was really something that uh, I want to do it for the young resident, and where they were just after the medical school, when they start this the residency in gynecologist, the first day I teach them to put the uh, very needle, and then the first year after several uh, day of week, they were able to do a laparoscopy, just the trocar and then the resident of the second year, I was always with two or three uh, residents around the table, put the trocar for the laparoscope and when later on he was able to do his part of the of the surgery, the left of the right part of the surgery. And I guess that in my, my personal opinion that is no better teaching process that in the operating room, really in life, but that is a personal opinion. I know that it represents some difficulties when you have a lot of residents, etc.
0: But I guess
1: it's primordial uh, to have the
0: real life. I, I totally agree. You know, I I I, I work with residents and. The residents will always say, well, I was working in my training box, and it seems so much easier for me to do my knot tying. And now that I'm doing it in real life, I'm struggling. And it's because you're exactly right. You're not there with the patient. You're not getting the feedback from the teacher, which I think is key. And I, I, I worry a little bit that we may be losing that, that ability a little bit. Yeah. Where do you see laparoscopic surgery in the next 20 or 30 years?
1: Everybody uh, is speaking about uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, equipment to better visualize. I guess that I believe that all these options are, are just a new equipment of new, like the new advance like in the equipment. But I'm not sure that, again, a personal opinion I'm not sure that by teaching to the young people the robotic surgery will really help to make a progress in endoscopic surgery. In my department, I was head of department, had the possibility because there were two robots in the hospital. If I wanted, I had the possibility to do it. Never used for two reasons because I was able without the robots to make a lot of things. And a second reason was that I considered that the teaching process, I am a teacher. I was prof and a teacher. I have to teach to the young people how to proceed, how to do the surgery. And I was convinced that with a robot, it was impossible to teach to the young resident how to do the surgery, how to do a laparoscopic hysterectomy, how to remove a large nodule, how to make the dissection of the ureter. Everything is possible, you know, by the the robot, and I agree, and you have seen one of the last uh, publications from uh, Mats Brunström, uh, the the pioneer in uterine transplantation. Uh, I know Mats very well. We were in Kenya together. I was doing, in the baboon, the uh, ovarian transplant, and I said to Mats, you are doing her transplant with a small model, rats and rodents. Why you don't come with me? In Kenya, where it's possible to operate the baboon, at that time, it was a big center. Matsu came uh, to do the surgery, uh, the hair transplantation, and now he's starting to remove the uterus in the donor with, with the robot. To, but you have seen probably the last result. In fact, the time, the, the duration of the surgery is not significantly reduced. There are probably some benefits for the donor that the surgery is made by endoscopy. But anyway, you should do a laparotomy at the end to remove the the uterus, a small laparotomy. So that I believe that maybe in the future, the preoperative management will be important and we will be able to make a more accurate diagnosis by a different, the MRI will uh, surely be improved with the contrasted use uh, the, we will improve the quality of the diagnosis to be sure that at the time of surgery we do it when it's indicated and when it's indicated we can do it safely for the women.
0: I agree I, I know I know Matt's well we've had several speaking engagements together he's a wonderful person he did tell me the stories of being in Kenya and working Initially to sort of fine tune the surgical approach, and you're right. You know, he's he, he's done things robotically now. I think he's can't. I can't imagine Matt's liking it much better than what he was doing with regular laparoscopies and through big incisions. Um, I think he's just trying to keep up with things. But he's he's a wonderful person. Uh, I'm glad you brought him up. He's a
1: wonderful person. Uh, so so you know, there's the, the person and Met and. Then, He's an excellent surgeon and he's very humble, honest. He's very
0: humble. Very humble.
1: Very, very humble. humble. Very, very humble. It's, and I say sometimes to Mats, you are too gentle. You are too gentle.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a very nice man. And I met his son and his daughter and super nice kids. Very nice. He's, he's done a great job. Jack, there's this movie called Prometheus. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. And in the movie Prometheus, this woman is running around and she is pregnant. And because they're in outer space in this movie, she goes into this machine. The machine scans her, has all these images, and the robot does the surgery without anybody there. Do you think that's how laparoscopic surgery is going to be in 30 years? Where we're not even going to be needed as surgeons. The robot, artificial intelligence, and imaging will do all the surgery for us.
1: Maybe uh, I guess that maybe we don't know exactly all the advantage the new things may represent. But I'm not sure that there are I'm not sure that there have so many advantages by using this technique versus another technique. I, I guess I believe that each surgeon is good in the technique he knows very well and is used to do. That is the message, yeah. and if. During a surgery is the message for all the young people, you are suddenly faced to something you have never seen. Don't hesitate to call a senior, don't That's hesitate right. to call another uh colleagues to help you because everybody has a complication. All surgeons have a complication. But you should we should try to have the minimal rate of complication. I, I totally agree. And as, as I told to my young people. The only surgeon who has no complication is the surgeon who don't operate. That's
0: <laughs> true. That's true. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that I know is, is debated a lot. I know it's debated a lot here in the United States. Do you think tubal surgery is no longer needed because we have IVF? <laughs>
1: I believe you asked the same question to Victor Gommel. No? <laughs> we, we, might, we probably did. <laughs> In fact, when I started my PhD thesis was done on tubal surgery. And I've made my PhD thesis analyzing the all these uh uh pathological, histopathology and all the receptors in the fallopian tube in case of hydrosalpinx, phimosis, and so on. So that I was a microsurgeon when I started, essentially for tubal surgery. A new question is, what is the role of uh, tubal surgery at the time of, as everybody is sent to IVF? The question is for the distal occlusion distal occlusion, the case of hydrosalpinx We know that, I guess, that we should be honest with the women. We know that if the, in case of hydrosalpinx if the ampullary falls are still present, salpangoneostomy can give you a chance to get pregnant of 25-30% maximum. This, it's more questionable. And in my practice, at the end of my practice, when I was phase an anidrosalpins, I would propose to remove both the and send to IVF. In case of phymotic osteum, easy. We know that the tubal mucosa is healthy and then open a phymotic osteum represents a nice opportunity. It can be done by laparoscopy with a high success rate because the prognostic factor will be the quality of the mucosa. And In my opinion, the best indication for tubal surgery, of course, will be when there is small adhesions between the ovary and the tube, not very dense, not fibrotic, just uh, small adhesions, very gentle adhesiolysis will restore the anatomy and it can be easily done. And the best indication is the reanastomosis, tubal reanastomosis, in case of uh, tubal occlusion by rings the, or by the clip, restore the potency of the fallopian tube by laparoscopy, it's easy with good results. This, in my opinion, it remain, it remain indication, specific indication for laparoscopic uh, uh, surgery for tubal disease, but we should honestly discuss with the patient the result and as uh, like the Fertile Battle, published in Fertility and Sterility, you know, everybody uh, tends to send the patient to the department where he's the best, like surgery for a surgeon, to IVF for an IVF uh, uh, doctor. So that the best way is to offer to the woman all the knowledge about the pro and con, And the doctor should not take the decision. The patient, after having the correct information about the advantage and disadvantage of both techniques, have the choice. But for me, it remains some indication for tubal surgery, of course.
0: Do you think endometriosis will soon be a disease that will diagnose much earlier so that we can treat medically versus needing to treat surgically? Big, 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 big
1: question and difficult question. Very difficult. I will start with a sentence I wrote 20 years ago. Nobody is born with a stage 4 endometriosis. Even for the deep lesions, for example, everybody is telling now that it's no progressive or slow, but in fact, at a certain time, in fact, this nodule increase in size. And your question concerns the adolescent, That's really a big problem, you know. I guess that more and more adolescents have endometriosis. But the big question is your question. The big question is, should we do a laparoscopy? Should we do a destruction of the small endometriotic implant to avoid a further evolution? We have no data. We have no data. And I have not the answer. I have not the answer. The prevention of endometriosis, which is obviously an epigenetic disease in many circumstances, is so difficult to analyze that we don't know exactly the best optimal, the best treatment and the optimal time to treat. When you imagine, for example, women with endometrioma and infertility On one side you are the surgeon and on the other side the IVF surgeon, the IVF doctor. Who is right? Who is right? Everybody comes with good results in terms of pregnancies and it's really difficult to judge. But what is important to know that I am convinced that there are more and more deep lesions, that is no doubt. 30, 40 years ago, even they were described already by Samson and Cullen. They were very unfrequent disease. Now, there are so many women with deep lesions that something wrong happened in the environment of the epigenetic. But we don't know exactly what is the best way to do it. You have excellent uh, paper. And uh, excellent researchers in the United States, like, uh, uh, for example, Bulum, where, Judici, they have made a lot of study of the growth factor responsible for the patho- in the pathogenesis process of endometriosis. But we are able to explain the evolution of endometriosis. But so far, we are not able to stop this evolution. Right. And I hope that in the future, we will be able, by medical therapy, to stop the evolution of this specific disease. Yeah. Yeah. That we are, you may imagine, the, the money, the money which is still spent to make the research in endometriosis. And I continue to work in my ex-lab I'm not a consultant in my ex-lab because I'm an emeritus, I'm not the boss anymore. But fortunately, I'm accepted as a consultant in my ex-lab and I continue to make the research on endometriosis. And more and more paper and more and more will focus on the growth factor, on the pathogenic process, to try to understand this process and to be able to stop it when the diagnosis is made.
0: That's, that's, that's a great answer, Jack. You know, one, one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking is I know there's, there are researchers and, and you, Taylor, comes to mind where he's been working on trying to come up with a blood test for endometriosis. Can you pick up one of these markers of endometriosis early without needing to do surgery, and then maybe treat these patients in a way that will prevent them from getting severe disease when they get into their reproductive years?
1: Yeah, that's it's a big question. It's a big question because so far we have not enough data. We don't know if we detect a small endometrioma in a young adolescent of 15, 16 years. We don't know. Everybody said it's a progressive disease, it will progress. But in fact, we have no idea. We we are not sure because it's impossible to make
0: Mm.
1: a laparoscopy every year to see the evolution. Should we treat at the age of 15 to avoid? maybe? I will say in my unit when an endometrioma was detected. In a young adolescent, I perform surgery for two reasons: to remove the endometrioma and to make a clear diagnosis of all the lesions, to, like a mapping, a mapping of the lesions to know if they have a lot of red lesions, white lesions, black lesions, to know exactly where we are. And you are right by asking me this question in an adolescent. you do a laparoscopy and if you have a lot of red lesions, we know that if we live like that, probably years later, the pelvis will be full of very active lesions. So that in that way, by decreasing the activity of the red lesions by surgery followed by medical therapy, we may maybe, maybe we may interrupt the progression of the disease.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that would be phenomenal if we ever were able to do that. Now, I am I am fortunate enough to be part of this international committee looking at redoing the endometriosis classification. You know, there's the traditional ASRM classification, which we all agree is deficient in many ways. There's other classifications throughout the world. This group is trying to put things together. And one of the things they're focusing on is exactly what you described, which is the deeper infiltrating endometriosis. Do you have any any words of wisdom to the committee on how we can make this classification a little bit better?
1: You know, in fact, uh, when you make
0: reference to the revised ASRM classification,
1: you have to look and, uh, and see the author. In fact, uh, Candice, Brua, myself were invited at that time at the ASRM meeting in Miami, and we discussed with uh, Shank and John Rock and Borghese, that is at that time that we used for the first time the term red, black, and white. In fact, the idea was to have an idea of the activity of the disease. But I fully agree with you. No one classification, no one, no one classification is able to make exactly the prognosis and the classification of the lesions. But I will change my question. Do we really need a better classification system? Knowing that every woman as a different type of endometriosis, different uh, uh, progression, that the endometriosis is different from a woman to a woman. I believe that no one classification will be, give us the possibility to make a clear view. In fact, it's for more than 40 years that we think about classification. And you have the USIAN, the uh, SRM, the revised SRM. And I'm not sure that by building a new classification system, we will make advancement in the uh, knowledge of endometriosis. Yeah,
0: yeah. no, I I, I totally agree. I think the only thing that we can hope for is that with a revised or unified classification, maybe we can incorporate some of the deeper infiltrating endometriosis as a surgical classification, because we have no prognostic data, right? None of this is meant to say, you've got stage three disease, therefore your chances of pain or your chances of fertility are this, right? That's right. In fact, fact, the
1: best way, in fact, the best way is to have uh, during laparoscopy to take a lot of picture, not the 20, but the left side, uh, the center and the right side to make a clear view. And if you have a problem, uh, six months later, if you have just a cartoon, with the endometriotic lesions, according to the classification, existing classification, it will never give you the same information that the picture you took during surgery, because you take the picture and you remember, yes, the head lesion, and you have a very quick view of the disease. I guess that the best classification is the personal classification, patient by patient.
0: At your stage of your career, when you're doing your research or when you're operating and you have a question that you are thinking about, who's the first person that you text or call to address that question from a medical standpoint? For
1: the research?
0: Yeah, for research. When you have a medical question or a scientific question and you pick up your phone because you're like, I'm not sure about this. Who's the first person on your list? That you call or send a text message to, to ask for advice?
1: But I have this time, you see, I had the board meeting once was, uh, was head of department, had a board meeting with all gynecologists of my team three times a week. All things, all difficult things are discussed.
0: Yeah. And then the other
1: way, I was really lucky because I was head of department of the clinical part. And I was head of the research unit yeah. at the same time. So that, I guess that if we have a question, it's fundamental to have a bridge between the clinic and the research. And the clinician, now there is a clear division between clinicians and researchers. And there's a little bit of pity because researchers, fundamentalists and clinicians should meet more and more to explain the problem, because when you are in a lab, research lab, you search a pathway of something, but you are not necessarily have an idea of what the clinician wants. And I guess that to answer to your question, when I had a medical problem, I try to discuss with my partner. Secondly. read in the literature because very often the answer is in the literature that you forget to read or you don't read. And yes, somebody, sometimes you are surprised when you look at the literature that somebody has already invented what you guess to have invented. and (laughs) uh, You have to be very humble and recognize that even in the past century, you know, the first imagine at the time of the que- the king Louis the roi de France, the first uh, Dionys, the surgeon, made the first uh, mammectomy. This in uh, seventeen hundred fifty-two. Wow! Ah, you imagine that? <laughs> yeah. When I think about it, I should be very humble. And I say there were in the past century some surgeons were also big pioneers, and this. After the literature, when I'm sure that the solution is not in the literature, I will go to my lab of research and discuss with my partner of the research unit, how can we answer to this question? And then we will establish a protocol. And sometimes it takes a protocol of research. It takes one month, two months to elaborate a nice protocol of research. Then the second step is to try to get money to make the research. And one of your questions is, what is the most difficult thing in your career? I mean, the most difficult thing was to find research for uh, money, to find money for the research. And uh, finally, I was happy because a lot of uh, rich person from Belgium helped a lot my research and this I was really, really happy. And the difficulty for the research is to find money. But from the moment that you have some good paper in good review, it's like a, a wheel which turns and you can have more and more money easily. And I started in my department of research with some person. Now there are more than 22 PhD in the lab, in my hex lab. It's possible
0: to make a good job of research. Wow, that's fantastic. So my last two questions, Jack. First is, what do you do when you're away from medicine? What do you do when you're away from research? What do you do during your free time? Now. Now? I work surely
1: four days a week. And in this room here, for example, I met the PhD student two or three times a week to discuss their research and I collaborate. I I guess that all the efforts for an emeritus is to continue to make the research, to push the young people to make a PhD thesis. The difficulty now is to find very active and young people to make research and to to have new ideas. Maybe many, many younger uh, residents, they want to do immediately the clinic, see patients, have money, IVF and do IVF surgery. I guess that we should keep some time for them to give them the possibility to make some research, to write during the residency one or two papers to adapt the brain, not only to the clinician, and to try to explain what the pathology occurs, how to treat it. And then my role now, I, you know even a Saturday and Sunday, for example, like you, you work surely on a Saturday and Sunday. Today, uh, I wrote a letter to the editor to fertility and sterility because I have to do the editorial of a paper who will be published. And I guess that it obliges you to think about and to find in the literature, the pro and con. And we should continue to do it, not stop. Otherwise, I guess that if I have not this possibility to continue to work, I cannot play golf 24 hours a day. Eh?
0: <laughs> so, so my last question is, how do you want people to remember Jacques Donet? How do you want people to remember you? How, what, what do you uh, want yes. people to think of when we say Jacques Dunaire? After some years, everybody is forgotten. Well, we don't want to forget you. <laughs> we want to be able to say, we want to be able to look at things like yeah, this video. You have your 600 plus manuscripts, you have your researchers. I would say your legacy are all the people you have trained and worked with. But if there's one thing that you want people to remember you by, what would that be?
1: Yeah, that's the memory should be that I'm a clinician and a surgeon, and I've tried to build a bridge between the clinic, practice and the research. And probably the people will remember me as the first surgeon who made a successful ovarian transplantation of a frozen tissue. If you look at the paper, if you look at the paper and the number of times the paper was seated, and it's a, a lot of time, and probably the people will remember that. But I would like that the people remember me like somebody who loves the clinical practice and the research. And I have to tell you that with the research and the clinical practice, I have been a
0: very happy man. That's wonderful. Well, Jack, I, I wish, I truly wish we were not doing this through a Zoom meeting. I wish I was in your garden, sitting on one of those stools, maybe having a glass of wine and doing this in person. I really, really do, because I think there's so much more we could talk about. But believe it or not, we've been talking for almost an hour and 40 minutes. It seems like... Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's minutes. true. One hour 40
1: minutes. Unbelievable. Okay. The spent time is running so fast.
0: It's so fast and and I had so many more questions, but I, I think it's been such a treat, such an honor to just have this time to meet you and to talk with you. I know people who watch this video, people who hear this video will be excited to hear your thoughts and get a better idea of who you are. So thank you so much once again for participating. Thank you, John. It
1: was my pleasure also to discuss of the past, present and future with you. I hope bye bye. we meet I hope we meet soon. Yeah, okay, bye. Bye-bye.